Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. This is the 21st stanza of the 119th Psalm, and it's he- headed by the Hebrew word shen, shen. And you can see there it looks similarly, if your Bible has the Hebrew character in it, um, in, the, in the heading, it looks a little bit like um, an illegitimately written W. kind of looks like a W a little bit. This consonant has two different pronunciations depending on the location of the diacritical dot. Uh, sometimes you would refer to these as dageshes, but it's a little dot. So if you look at the W, you see there's kind of the three spears that rise northward from it. And if there is a dot, and, and at least modern Hebrew it's this way, native speakers, people that grew up with it wouldn't even need the dagesh. They wouldn't even need this diacritical dot. They would know what it is. Um, but if it's located, if a dot is located over the left, Prong, the far left prong, uh, the H is dropped, and instead of being shen, it is sin. It has more of an S, correlating to the Greek sigma. If uh, that diacritical dot is located over the right prong, it has the sh sound to it, like she, shen. Then you get that H sound to it. So depending on where the dot would be located, alternates the pronunciation of the sound of this consonant. Now the placement of this mark not only changes the sound of the letter, but in some cases it also changes the very meaning of the word. So you can have the exact letters and the exact um, uh, alphabetical markings underneath the words and they look identical, but that little diacritical mark located to the left or the right changes not only the pronunciation of the word, but that dot actually changes the very definition of the word. And I'll give you one illustration. For instance, in the Hebrew word shava, it means to swear. That dagesh, that would be located over the right prong of this shin. When it's over the right, shava, shava, it means to swear. But if the dagesh is then moved to the far left, the H sound dropped, it's sava, And that doesn't mean to swear anymore. It means to satisfy. Now, there's no test over this. I point this out for one reason. Occasionally, you'll hear people question the very authoritativeness of Scripture. And they do so because they uh, ascertain or theorize that some Masoretic scribe got lazy in the copying of his his writings and renderings. And therefore, it undermines... The text, and they'll talk about better text and older text and more trusted text. And these textual issues really lead to the various translations that are on the market today. And the reality is there are no more original text left in print today. You can't go back to Moses' time and get the original uh, transcription that he took as God spoke to his heart. And yet to undermine and to say these scribes made errors. I mean, there was a big difference between swearing and satisfying, isn't there? And if they erred to the word of God, then they have a great problem, right? The problem is no one can say conclusively that there is a word of God. Yet the Lord settled all of this, didn't he? When he's speaking of the Old Testament said, not one jot nor tittle. Now we're educated a little bit in the Hebrew. What's the jot? 
That's the Yod. That's the smallest Old Testament consonant. He said not one marking regarding the consonant. They didn't get one consonant wrong. God preserved the Old Testament manuscripts in such a way that you and I can have the authoritative word of God that they didn't get one letter wrong. But then he uses tittle. Tittle is different. It's not just its own letter. We looked at this last week in reference to the resh and the dalit. Those two, the dalit has that little stem coming out over the end. That's the tittle. That is the distinguishing marks between two letters. It's what distinguishes them. God said they won't miss one distinguishing mark. Those individuals, so supernaturally was the word of God preserved. That friend, you didn't get swear where satisfied was mentioned. And you didn't get satisfied where swear was mentioned. God, as he has done in the past, so he does now, has used his sovereign means to preserve the word of God so that you and I can hold and possess and have the word of God. And because we can say we hold and have the word of God, it then becomes a matter of whether or not we're going to allow the Word of God to be authoritative in our life. That's what I'm speaking of this evening. That's why it's important to have an understanding of this. Now back to our notes. Another interesting note regarding uh, this, this word shen. Uh, there is a noun that is very similar. The noun shen means tooth. Uh, Proverbs chapter 25 talks about uh, a foolish man, an unfaithful man in a time of trouble. He's like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. And you can almost, if you look and kind of invert that shin character, it, it almost looks like the teeth coming out of a mouth. And that's the word picture behind the Hebrew noun shin. There are many Hebrew names in the Old Testament that began with this consonant. Often the Hebrew names, proper names I'm speaking of, places and people that began with Shen are translated, or I should say transliterated. It means they chose the closest single characteristic in the English language in place of the Hebrew lettering. And they are transliterated with an English S instead of the Sh sound. And there's several names like this. For instance, one of the most familiar ones is the, when you get in, into the New Testament, we speak of Simon. Sometimes you'll hear folks say it, Simeon. And you've got there S-I-M-E-O-N. But in the Hebrew language, it really would be the Shen, the, the, the dot, the Degesh is on the right side of, the, pro, of the, uh, the prong there, and it would have that Sh sound. And so instead of Simeon, it would be Shemian or Shemon. Uh, for instance, some time ago there was a political leader in Israel and his name was Shimon Perez. We would call him Simeon. And in his Hebrew vernacular with that H, it, it adds the sh sound. And there's other ones like the name Solomon. Samson has the double shin that is there. Shimshon. Uh, Samuel, all of these, but they're transliterated to the S. And of course, I don't think that's anything new to us. Anyone that's had the opportunity to spend any time immersed in a foreign culture, in a non-Western culture, or perhaps at least not an American culture, with names indicative to that culture, uh, when they come over into the Western world in English, we have a way of anglicizing those names. In fact, uh, that's probably the case with most of us here this evening, isn't it? that if you could trace your family tree far back long enough, the name that is your go-by name 
that family name that is so dear, there's probably someone in the English world that changed that for you, either done over the course of years as it relates to birth certificates and marriage certificates and census reports, or if it did because there was someone that could not spell well and it got spelt by someone else. That often is the case. Let me give you the important Hebrew Shen words that are here in verse 160 through 168. We start off in verse 161. It's the word prince. Prince. In verse 162, rejoice. On 163, lying. Lying. 164, seven, as in seven times. Now, I'll make you think a moment. Everyone should know what verse 165 is. Now, there's a Hebrew word that you've probably said, if you've just regularly come to church, you've said part of this Hebrew word probably hundreds of times you've said it. It's peace, the word peace. You remember what the Hebrew word is? Shalom. It is the last part of the city of David, Jerusalem. It's an abbreviational form of shalom, the city of Peace. Peace. Verse 165. 166, I have hoped. I have hoped. 167, half kept. Half kept. And you could probably make a good guess at 168, couldn't you? I have kept. I have kept. Notice we've perused this just a moment that there are three times, three times in this section that David recounts his love for the words of God. Notice them in verse 163. He said, I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. 165, great peace have they which love thy law. And then again in verse 167, my soul hath kept thy testimonies and I love them exceedingly. In fact, that final expression of the word love, David adds exceedingly to magnify the preeminence of his affection. Despite the persecution that occurs in the first verse from various high places, particularly princes, the wickedness that abounds, David proclaims continually an undying love for the word of God. That's why we have entitled this Shin section, The Love of God the blessed. And here over these eight some verses, David is going to declare his love for the words of truth. Notice, if you will, in verse number 61, he's going to declare his love of truth and he's going to declare it with awe. Declare it with awe. Note verse 161, princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. David's love for the truths of the word of God is contrasted by the undeserved persecution that he faces. You know, when you're a little child, you were no doubt told the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's a biblical precept. That is a good thing. But it's a misnomer in one sense to think that just because you behave yourself accordingly, that everybody else will too. It doesn't always work like that. The scripture is full of individuals that did right by God and did right by their man, uh, by their fellow man, but wrong was done exceedingly to them. I think about Jeremiah the prophet. 
Jeremiah the prophet was one that at times tried to give counsel and often comfort to the children of Israel. He preached the unequivocal truths to the word of God again and again, and yet he was abused again and again. You could stick with the prophets and find that to be something uh, wherewithal throughout all their ministries. Ezekiel's one that God has given hope to an outcast people, to a forlorn people, and yet they are hard neck and stiff necks to him. I think of the Apostle Paul, one that would preach the gospel in much of, of the western world, in the, in, at least in the, in the first, far south region of it. And he has gone and he has preached the gospel and his conscience is clear to every man for the faithfulness by which he's preached the gospel. And yet he's beaten with rods and yet he is stoned. At times he is placed in prison. Uh, false accusations were prevalent upon him. What happened to the fact that he had done right to some and yet they had returned all the good and evil to him? And the dire consequences of life, he had men forsake him. He had Alexander the coppersmith that did much evil unto him. The singular fact is in the life that sometimes believers will face undeserved persecution. And David is facing undeserved persecution. And this would not be the final time in his life that he would face it. And it certainly was not the first time that he faced it. I think about the persecution he faced from King Saul. Here's a man that on multiple occasions attempted to take his life. But what had David done to King Saul? Why, he had went out and fought the king's enemy. Goliath, that should have fallen squarely upon the shoulders of Saul. But rather it was David by faith that would run towards this adversary and through the power of God would see God defeat using him and a sling and those smooth stones, this great giant on that day. And it rallied the morale of all of the citizenry of Israel. How was it that David had harmed or injured Saul? He had been faithful. He had spared Saul's life at times. And yet here you have an individual that wrongs him in an undeserved fashion. While these princes wronged him, David had the stabilizing fear of the word of God. That word awe speaks of the fear, a reverential, yet also the fear of the justice of the holy God. As a child of God, it is God's fear or our fear of the things of God that is the beginning of wisdom that should arrest our behavior even in times where evil falls upon us. No wonder in Romans chapter 12, we are forbidden as believers to be vengeance or seeking a vengeance for wrongdoing that is done to us. No wonder in Matthew chapter 18, we're admonished that if our brother sin against thee, forgive him, yea, 70 times 7. That is not of God's keeping that he wants vengeance to flow from our hands to those that has harmed us. Rather, God is one that will be in the business of righting all wrongs. And he will be faithful and just towards his children. And he will see correction and justice vindicated towards those that do evil. But as David considers the love of God and he, or the love of the, that he has for the word of God, and he considers those that have wronged him, this awe produces some wonderful fruit in his life. Two things just to review in our mind in verse 161. It is his love for the word of God that comforted him. What do, you, what do you do when you're being persecuted for goodness sake? I think of the gospel. John chapter 15 and 16. They're in the world. The world hate them because they are not of the world. They hate them because they hated me first. No man is above or no servant is above his master. Oh, it's then that the word of God is our comfort. 
I think of the 23rd Psalm. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. What's the very next verse? Thou preparest a table for me in thee. Those two verses are not haphazardly uh, merged together. They're not unsequenced. There's an intentionality of a sovereign God. David received because of the love he had for the word of God. In times where there was undeserved persecution in his life, the word of God was his comfort. It was God preparing a table of rest and comfort and provision, though all surrounding him seems to have been lost. And then I think of this phrase here in 161, my heart standeth in all. You know, when you're receiving persecution, you don't think about your heart standing. You think of your heart breaking. When Absalom rose his hand up against his daddy, oh, did that not break David's heart? To watch Ahithophel, his teacher, David's teacher, his counselor at one time, rise up against David, does that not break his heart? Yes, but it's the Word of God and David's love for the Word of God that cautions him. It cautions him, for it causes his heart to stand. It admonishes him. It warns him. And every believer should strive in their life to live in awe of the Word of God. Particularly regarding believers, all persecution for a believer should be without a cause. I have there particularly 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, and that's Peter's admonition in a time of suffering that though many of these are brought before magistrates and they're being persecuted, let it not be because you were a busybody. Let it not be because you were a thief. Let it not come because you were involved in another man's matters, but rather that you were obedient to the word of God, the illustration of Jesus Christ. Why, if you're going to be persecuted without cause, this is a great glory to the Almighty God. David declares his awe and his love for the word of God with great awe. Notice, if you will, the next couple of verses, beginning in verse 162. I rejoiced at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgment. David declares his love for the word of God with great adoration. Great adoration. The love of the Word of God prompts David to express his faithfulness and his fervor for truth. And as one looks at his adoration, you can see it in several different lights. In verse 162, in speaking of his adoration, he declares his love for the Word of God and he sees the Word of God that it is like treasures. In fact, you'll note there, he said, it's like one that findeth great spoil. David's a man of war. The idea of a spoil isn't just a treasure that was in, given to you by inheritance, but rather it was something that belonged to an adversary. Maybe it was something that you had never seen. That's what I think of when I think of spoils. I think of it being from some foreign entity that we had met on battle and I had been victorious and I had never seen those treasures that they possessed. They were peculiar to my eyes, valuable to my mind, and desirous to my heart. And that's how David saw the word of God. He said, they are like one that findeth great spoil. You're overwhelmed. This is a negative connotation, but do you remember old Achan? Goes into Jericho and all of the spoils, the gold, the silver, the Babylonian garments, all were to belong unto the Lord, and yet he took of those. 
There was a great temptation in his life. He was mesmerized by those spoils of war. They were unique. They were coveted. And yet David asserts that the word of God was like unto him that findeth great spoil. He was mesmerized by their beauty, desirous of all their worth, and coveted with his great heart a grand love for the truths that the word of God had. They were like treasures. And verse 163 says, I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. David sees the word of God in that it preserves truth. They, the precepts in the Word of God, preserve truth. That phrase, I hate and abhor lying, is marvelous. You'll remember Proverbs chapter 6. These things doth the Lord hate. Yea, uh, these six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to Him. And a lying lips are at the top of the list. God hates those things. And yet when you think of a lying lips, several times in Scriptures it's rightly associated with false truths, false teachings, false worships. You, you think of those pagans that would have worshipped all of the many gods of the ancient times. They expressed truths about the supreme God to these pagan deities. They were, if you will, lying. David says the truths of the word of God, they preserve me. They keep me aright. They illuminate the path that is before me. In verse 164, his adoration moves to a third area and he speaks that the word of God and its precepts, they are worthy of my time. Seven times, seven times a day do I praise thee. Marvelous. I don't think that it's just the number of seven times. I think that's certainly the case. But beyond that, it's the idea that it consumed his every moment and waking hour. Previous passages, he awakes at midnight regarding the words of God. Yes, certain Old Testament saints prayed three times a day. Yes, in the New Testament, we're to pray without ceasing. Yet every moment of the day was worthy of David to invest his time in the adoration and the study and the obedience of the Word of God. Yet he further declares his love for the Word of God with great amity. Notice, if you will, in verse 165, Great peace. Have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Lord, I have hope for thy salvation, and done thy commandments. He declared with amity. There is, Isaiah speaks, no peace for the wicked. You'll find this in Isaiah 48 and 22, and Isaiah 57 and 21. Yet equally for the righteous, God keeps them in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on them. That's also in Isaiah in the 26th chapter in the third verse. Here in verse 165, Great peace have they which love thy law. Great peace is pronounced upon those that love truth. It shall never cause them to be an error. In fact, that word there, offend, in verse 164, you'll find it over in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 14, and God is pronouncing these admonitions and these abominations that he did not want his children to commit. Long before, I think in our country, it's the early 90s, you have the ADA, the uh, uh, Disability Act that uh, Congress passed and was signed into law by President Bush and regulated door handle heights on certain buildings and, and, and code regarding ramps and stuff like that, the Disability Act. And that came part of our code, a building code in, in the early 90s. Long before that, God had a consideration. 
In Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 14, he commands that thou should not put a stone of stumbling in front of the blind. He said, that's an abomination unto me. That word stumbling stone, same as the word here offend. Same as the word here offend. David said, I have such great peace. Because of the great peace, those which love thy law, nothing shall offend them. In the sense, nothing's going to make them fall into error. It, the word of God, shall never cause the child of God to be in error. Any error that you have in life is because you have not studied the matter concerning the word of God. There is no errors in the Word of God. You can follow the Word of God, the balance of your life, and rest true that it is always going to point you to the path that pleases God exclusively. The Word of God is never going to tempt you with evil. The Word of God is a spiritual safe place for your heart to rest and for your soul to harbor in. They shall walk in its confidence and hope and never worry about falling into sin. This passage here in the 165th verse is the very passage that he referred to in the epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 9 and verse 33. This great peace promotes the expectation of hope. For like his peace, his hope, David's hope, was in the Lord's salvation. He says there, I have hope for thy salvation and done thy commandments. He declares his love for the word of God with great amity. Then notice these final two verses. And they're related around that singular shin word, kept. My soul hath kept. I have kept. He now is going to declare his love for the word of God with great acceptance. With great acceptance. This last section focuses on the believer's responsibility to keep the word of God. The greatest token of our love for the Word of God is our consistency in obeying the truth. I think of 1 John. It talks about that we love the Lord and His commandments are not grievous unto us. The words keep and do, keep and do, occur more than 120 times in the Old Testament alone. In fact, the first of them is Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19, the Lord speaking of Abraham, he said, for I know him and he will instruct his children that they keep my way and do justice. If you did a word study on those, those keep and do over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament, they correlate together. The responsibility of the believer to accept the teaching of the Word of God. David's decisions and responses to the troubles that he faced in life would not be hypocritical. He was not going to do wrong just because everybody else was doing wrong. He was not just going to turn to a different path because everybody else had strayed from the path of truth. He was going to abide in the precepts and the testimonies of the Word of God. For it was them that his soul loved exceedingly. He would accept God's way for his saints in humble submission. The persecution and difficulties that a believer faces, the persecution and difficulties that a believer's face may never decrease. What do you mean? Obedience to the word of God won't necessarily conclude all the problems you face in life. Yet the love for God's word should motivate us to be determined in our obedience to Him. 
the great gift of His peace is always beyond the capacity of the world to understand. I think of Philippians chapter 4. Everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made unto God and the peace of God that passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Similar to what the Lord spoke to His disciples shortly after Judas has left. He's gone about to betray our dear Savior. The passion of the Christ is soon upon him. The conclusion of the Last Supper is present. Soon he will be in the garden. Soon chapter 17 will occur. The prayer of the Lord in the garden. 15 and 16, the promise of the Comforter. And 18, the terror of the cross will lie before him. And yet in chapter 14, he reminded his disciples again and again, Peace, I live with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be. He didn't say trouble won't come. He said don't let your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Why? How is this possible? An exceeding love for the truths of the Word of God. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.